When I was a young man, I was a prosecutor trying to put drug traffickers in jail. They're not my words, but those of newly elected Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte speaking to us at the East Asia Summit in Vientiane in September 2016. But I couldn't get a conviction, he said, because the criminals had bribed the police and the judges. So I ran for mayor of my city and I won the election. His voice was rising loud and intense. Everyone, Barack Obama, Li Keqiang, Shinzo Abe, all of us leaders were paying attention. And you know what I did about the drug traffickers, he said? I killed them all. You could have heard a pin drop. Sitting next to me, China's Premier Li looked around for help. Surely he was thinking something had gone wrong with the translation. And so just in case we missed it the first time, Duterte repeated very loudly now, I killed them all. And so he had, and so he did. Do not do drugs, because I will kill you. Oh, no, it's not an easy job, President Nayan. You have contend with this son of a bitch and with the bitch in media. Duterte's aggression, populism, disregard for the law seemed wildly outlandish in 2016, but it was a style that became all too familiar to too many countries around the world in the years that followed. In the United States, at least, journalists were able to report and hold their leaders to account. But in the Philippines, journalism was a very dangerous business. Maria Ressa had been reporting in Southeast Asia for many years and had run CNN's Southeast Asian Bureau out of Jakarta for a decade. But in 2012, she went back to Manila, where she had been born, and set up an independent news service called Rappler. She fearlessly reported on Duterte's drug war and on corruption. The war on drugs became a war on the poor. We had one team that would go out every night. They would come home with at least eight dead bodies on it. The narrative of the government is that they fought back. These are extrajudicial killings or murder. In July 2017, in his State of the Union address, Duterte had taken aim at Rappler, accusing the organization of being fake news. That wasn't original. It was just six months after Donald Trump had popularized the term. But Duterte went further, warning journalists that they were not exempt from assassination. Facing a torrent of abuse, including threats to a life and many legal cases launched against her by the government, Maria and her team at Rappler have not flinched. They stood up to Duterte, they stood up for democracy and the rule of law. Maria is the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize winner, along with the Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov, for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression, which, the citation reads, is a precondition for democracy and lasting peace. Maria, congratulations on all of your work and thank you for your heroism, uh, your advocacy. 
for standing up to autocracy, Inc., as you describe it, or fascism in its uh, modern form. How do you think we're going? Not well. First, also, how how wonderful to have role reversal. You know, I would be chasing you for an interview. So um, what we've looked at is the impact of technology on democracy. And it starts with the impact of technology on people. And um, it, the problem is that a lot of the technology that now delivers the news, primarily social media, weaponizes our biology against us. And that has had massive ripple effects. I call them cascading failures that has not only made democracy weaker in many parts of the world, it's enabled the rise of autocracy, of fascism in many parts of the world. You you know this. Um, I mean, today, uh, more than 60% of the world now is under authoritarian rule, we're back to 1989 levels. I mean, the real problem, of course, is if the incentive structure is upside down, doesn't it make sense that the world turns upside down? You know, when lies are rewarded, that's the basic foundational problem of our information ecosystem. And when your information ecosystem is corrupted, nothing else can be pristine. Maria, you've made the point many times and it's and it's absolutely right that the a lie is is halfway around the world before truth it's got its boots on and that means that fact checkers and and organizations like Rappler who are challenging the lies struggle to catch up and you've made the point in the Philippines most recently in the 2022 election where an outrageous lie, just a complete bald-faced lie, will have 300,000 views and your correction of it will have 3,000. How do we grapple with this? Because it seems to me there is a shamelessness on the part of so many authoritarian figures. I mean, Trump in the American context is the absolute classic example, totally shameless, didn't worry whether what he was saying was true or false and certainly uh, was not concerned about telling the truth. I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's gaslighting, isn't it? It's institutional gaslighting. Yeah, absolutely. I go back to this foundational design of social media, which is when it decides that it will reward the lie, you know, especially lies laced with anger and hate by giving it greater distribution, it has fundamentally changed everything. So what does that mean? Um, it not only encourages more lies because, you know, if you are just say anyone on the street and you want to get wider distribution, you go extreme. And if you get even wider, if you want wider, you lie. This is what we've seen. These are values that are, have eroded the foundation of everything we believe in. How do we fight this? You know, I would hate to be in government at this point in time, trying to govern because there's no direct conduit to the people. And what's happened is this I said in the Nobel lecture, right? If, if lies are facts, meaning you no longer have facts, if you don't have facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without these three, nothing is possible. We can't tr solve huge existential problems like climate change. We can't have democracy. You know, I remember George Schultz, who was a statesman for over for 100 years. He died when he was 100 years old. And he talked about his greatest lesson. He was saying that his last public statement was supporting us in Rappler. I mean, who knew, right? But he said that with trust in the room 
everything is possible. Without trust, nothing is possible. So this is the world we live in today where we're in disparate places, we have no trust. I mean, we've seen this before. It's been described in the West as the Russian fire hose of falsehood. Well, now imagine the entire world is caked in this because the way we communicate is corrupted. Why are our minds and our emotions not protected? We have building codes. Australia, you know, you walk into a building and you have an assurance as a citizen of that nation that the building isn't going to fall down around you because it meets certain standards for safety of the people. And we're not just talking as consumers, right? The big problem we face now in almost every country around the world is that what used to be consumers or what the social media platforms like to call users, we need to stop being users and becoming citizens. In the lead up to the 2022 presidential election in the Philippines, Maria worked with a number of groups to orchestrate the hashtag facts first PH operation. The objective was to get facts moving as fast as lies. It included 16 news organizations, 116 civil society groups, academics, lawyers, and software developers from San Francisco. All of this simply to get facts back into the information system. tried to do in the Philippines is to create a whole of society approach, right? A four-layer pyramid to protect the facts. That's kind of an insane thing to think about, right? But we, for the first time, 16 news organizations work together in fact-checking, which is really boring. And they these fact-checks on social media don't spread. So that's layer one. But layer two is, we called it the mesh. These are civil society groups whose task was to spread those boring fact-checks with emotion. And I suggested, you know what? Emotion spreads as fast as anger. Inspiration. Zelensky proved this, right? So if inspiration can spread as fast as anger, why not? The third layer were the academics, the researchers, to look at, to tell people every week, Filipinos, how we were being manipulated online, right? Instead of actually waiting to publish their papers, what we did is we gave them data that we had. And, you know, we were all very transparent and we said, please come out with it every week. And it worked. The last layer is the most important one, because if you don't have facts, you cannot have rule of law. And that is the layer four, the lawyers, the legal groups. And their task was to actually, they filed almost more than 20 cases in a three-month period that not just protected the journalists and the mesh layer, but tried to protect integrity of elections. It was the first time the lawyers had been involved. And frankly, they were far more energetic than those exhausted journalists at the bottom layer. This was ad hoc and it worked very well, given that we really only had three months to do this. Um, so I think in every society, we need to think through how do you wake people up to the dangers and how do you, this is a challenge to news organizations, how do you build communities of action to protect the facts?
Where you get to the point where in the United States, a very substantial percentage of the population believes that President Biden was illegitimately elected. Yeah. And you have a country whose founding uh, historical ideology was one of revolution and uh, people taking up arms to protest against uh, taxation without representation. Once you actually persuade a substantial number of people in a country with very high gun ownership that their government is illegitimate and that was not lawfully elected, then you are lit, then you are asking for an insurrection. You you know it, it 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 follows. It seems to me like night follows day. So these falsehoods are very consequential. It's not like you know a percentage of people believing Elvis is still alive or the world is flat or something like that. Uh, how do we? reconcile freedom of speech uh, with standards that make publishers, whether they are platforms like the social media platforms or traditional curated publishers like, you know, television networks, newspapers and so forth, how do we make them responsible for ensuring that so far as they can, their content is accurate? Yeah, yeah. So, so first, this isn't a free speech issue. The technology platforms want to make it that way to give themselves cover. And there's a substantial, I think last year it was $70 million spent. I mean, the largest now. This is, this rivals any industry, including, you know, the old big tobacco percentage wise tech spent $70 million last year to lobby lawmakers. Um, it's not a free speech issue. Anyone can say anything, right? Your crazy neighbor can keep talking about his crazy ideas, but it's what they we choose. And I'm going to say this is where the platforms go wrong. What they choose to give exponential distribution, and that's the incentive. It is um, to take the crazy neighbor's Um, crazy theory and put it on the front page of the newspaper. In the old days, you'd be able to sue the newspaper, right? Because it's a lie. But today, the platforms have kind of, you know, they're able to do it because their business model rests on the ability to keep us scrolling. So I think the first, I mean... And and they're not responsible for the content. I mean, isn't that the fundamental thing? Because because if, if a newspaper publishes defamatory material on its front page or in any page, it can be sued. But the, you know, Facebook, Twitter, etc., TikTok of this world, they say, well, we're just a conduit. You know, we're not, we're not a publisher. That's the first slide. And if, if you've got a problem, go after the guy that posted the, the language or the, you yeah. know, the comments. And, I, and that is the first lie, because in the end, they choose what to distribute. Where, where legal, where the lawmakers should be coming in would be on the algorithms of distribution. Um, a comedian said this many years ago at the Anti-Defamation League, um, Sasha Baron Cohen. He said, uh, it's a freedom of reach issue, not freedom of speech. It's distribution. So it is actually about about data and the way data has been weaponized against us, right? Because essentially what these platforms have done is cloned every one of the users. So they have what they call a model of each of us based on our atomized posts. And they claim that they own that model of us, i.e. they own our clones. And that is the database that they use to micro-target. Micro-targeting is not the old-style advertising. Micro-targeting means that they take your most 
vulnerable moment to a message, feed it to you for profit, and then shift your perspective, right? This is where it becomes Pavlovian in nature. They own our clones. And that is sold at scale. Human beings have been commodified. I mean, the woman who coined the term surveillance capitalism, Shoshana Zuboff, compares this to the slavery, right? Because we don't even know that we're being insidiously manipulated. So I think that's the first is we need to look at these algorithms that are manipulating us behind the scenes for profit. Um, we came out Last year, in April last year, Dmitry Muratov and I, along with other Nobel laureates and about 150 civil society groups, came up with a 10-point action plan to deal with this, kind of at a constitutional level. But it boils down to three. The first is stop surveillance for profit. We need to really get our data back. We should not be insidiously manipulated. The second is stop coded bias, because what Silicon Valley, what the big tech has done is to actually code their own biases into what is what is uh, shaping humanity at scale. So, for example, uh, a black woman, an African-American woman was trying to do an AI experiment at MIT uh, and she couldn't the AI couldn't recognize her face until she put a white mask on their coded bias. So coded bias needs to get stopped. That's the second. The third is journalism as an antidote to tyranny. I really hate it when journalists are compared to influencers because influencers play to the crowd. They are there to become popular. Journalists do this hard thing of speaking truth to power, to hold power to account. So this is kind of one of the ways, and you notice none of those include any um, any notions of stopping free speech. In fact, what we want to do is to stop the lies, stop the manipulation at scale, bring back an environment where the public sphere can go back to a discussion so we can not just scream at each other and pound each other to silence with hate, with emotions, but pull back the emotions, the way democracies used to work and actually discuss our future. It's an existential moment. I mean, I live in a country where we have an average of 20 typhoons every year. We have islands that are sinking, and yet we can't even talk about that because we're being manipulated for power. Maria, you've worked in your distinguished journalistic career. You've worked in Southeast Asia and uh, most often in Indonesia. You've, you've observed Islamist uh, terrorist organizations used social media and digital media to take them down rabbit holes that led them to the point of wanting to strap a, you know, a suicide vest on and, you know, blow up a bus or a plane or whatever. Isn't the same thing happening to society at large, that the combination of these algorithms and platforms that pay no regard to the accuracy or responsibility of the content, that is leading people to wilder and more radical uh, views, untethered from fact. And it seems to me that much of the so-called mainstream or curated media, Fox News being the biggest example in the US, has gone down a similar path because they've seen that there is money to be had in angertainment, so that you are making people angry, you're making them divided, you're making them hate other parts of the community, 
and that all drives ratings and drives revenue, which is might be good for the shareholders, but it's catastrophic for the country and the community. Yes, it's a huge question, but absolutely on all the different levels that you just talked about. I think part of the reason we saw the pattern early is precisely because I studied uh, the radicalization of Indonesians in Indonesia. You know, when when 9-11 happened, I was on a treadmill in Jakarta and I watched the buildings crash and I remembered it as a memory from the Philippines. Right. So I actually spent years trying to figure out how one person gets radicalized and they get radicalized with this idea of us against them. Right. And and what did Al-Qaeda do? It took disparate homegrown groups in different countries. In the Philippines, it was the Abu Sayyaf, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, the MILF. In Indonesia, there was a group called Jama Islamiyah. So what they did is homegrown grievances, but they took the groups that had already been formed and then gave them a global jihad. Something very similar is happening online where exponential growth is possible. So if you think about radicalization, and that's exactly whether it is radicalization for terrorism, right? Because why does somebody become a terror? Why does someone decide to become a suicide bomber? Because they're unhappy with their lives. They feel disconnected from their family. They feel a greater, whether it is in Islam, it was a jihad, a misnomer, I mean, a misinterpretation of jihad. For the, for the terrorists to be. And now what we're seeing is these same tactics at scale in a way we never could have imagined for political extremism. But political extremism, that leads to violence. Well, you, you've stood up to more than one bully, many bullies in your life and more than one dictator. Do you think you're winning? We're still here. You know, it's hard to say what are the metrics of success. For me, it's just really simple. Uh, Our constitution is very clear on our rights. I am not voluntarily giving up my right. Rappler is still here. I mean, even our lawyers weren't. I think they were cautioning me six years ago saying, you know, what? Why? Like, how do you? You shouldn't compromise inalienable rights, right? You don't compromise those things. So, yes. Um. But who knows? You know, you would know better. I mean, I I worry. Uh, the very last things that I've started looking at is, you know, the number of countries around the world where it looks like democracy is dying. We're falling off the edge of a cliff. That by 2024, and these are the key elections to look at, you know, are going to be India and the United States. Each year, these illiberal leaders, because of our communication system, are taking populism to new heights. They get elected democratically, and then what they do is they crumble the institutions of democracy from within, and then they ally together in kleptocracy. So Australia, you have to hold the line, you know? So so this is it, I think. Brazil is the next stop on the podcast, and we're going to discuss Brazil's electoral system, which has some similarities to Australia's, and also what there was in their political environment that enabled an attempted coup on January the 8th. 
podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika, and audio clips from this podcast were from Ramona Diaz's frontline documentary, A Thousand Cuts. Listener.